0: Well, good morning, church family. It is my joy to be here with you guys yet again on another beautiful Sunday, to be able to bring the Word of the Lord. I'm hoping that I'm able to keep my pages down so I'm able to preach without losing my spot. Well, as Ryan said, I'm going to be preaching from Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. I'm going to try and work through this a little bit quicker than I did last time. My message went almost an hour last Sunday. I didn't realize that. So I want to be very mindful of our time out here in the elements. This is a little bit different. There's bugs. There's children that are antsy. So I want to be respectful of your your time. Yet I don't want to leave out any of the word. Well, if we look at the word that is going to be preached today, it all kind of hinges on verse 13. It talks about... Unity of the faith. As I was studying this passage and preparing for the message, I was reminded of a study once uh, on the redwood trees. I don't know if you know much about redwood trees, but they're a very interesting tree. They're some of the largest trees that exist on planet Earth. I've seen pictures of cars driving through the very middle of these trees. I've seen arborists working on these trees. Somebody snaps a photo and they look like an ant in comparison to the mass of the tree. But what's interesting about this large, massive tree is that it has no taproot. And its roots go down only 6 to 10 feet. I was really amazed that such a large tree could stand with such a weak underground structure. But what a lot of people don't know about these trees is that their roots reach out really far, up to 100 feet, in search of roots from other redwood trees, and they unite with them. They link in with them. The root structures begin to grow together. This same tree out in a pasture might topple over when the wind comes and the rain loosens the soil, but in a redwood forest... They stand united. They stand strong and they stand for a very long time. I was just thinking about the implications of that doctrinally. What that means even thinking about this text, about unity in a church and when a church is completely unified in every facet, how strong that church stands when its very roots are held together, bearing one another up. that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that it builds itself up in love. Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning before we begin, that he would help us to navigate through this text, understand how we can apply it in our lives and be strengthened and encouraged. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for your truth, that there is only one truth, Lord, found in your Word, Help us as a church to be unified by that word, strengthened by that word, holding one another up in accordance with your word in love. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might understand this passage clearly and live it out. Be with us this morning in Christ's name, amen. Well, you can group some of these verses together. Verses 1 through 3 can be grouped together. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is a continuation of the previous chapter. He was talking about what it really means to be a Christian, to have Christ dwelling in your heart, to be rooted and grounded in love, to be transformed by the very love of Christ. When this is understood, when this is accepted, and when this is played out, you must walk worthy of the manner that you have been called, or walk in a manner worthy, rather, of the calling to which you have been called. And then he says, you do this with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now looking ahead and just thinking about what the passage is about, unity, love, unity in doctrine, you see where Paul is beginning to work this concept up. He's saying you're going to have to deal with each other in humility. You're going to have to deal with each other in gentleness, patiently, bearing with one another out of love. Not everybody is going to believe the same thing. Not everybody is going to be at the same level. Not everybody is going to hold to an identical teaching. And he's saying they should. But in the meantime, there needs to be unity. There needs to be love, brotherly affection, camaraderie. These are all inherent in what it is to be a Christian. And these are what it is to have unity You can't have unity if you're not willing to bear with one another. Then Paul goes on to make a doctrinal statement, if you will. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, And in all. In other words, Paul is saying (laughs) there's not many ways. God is not, there's not, this isn't a polytheistic religion. There isn't multiple ways to be a Christian. There's one true way, one true doctrine, one true method of salvation, and one God. One God, which is Spirit, one Spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father. It's this Trinitarian doctrine. But notice what Paul is doing here. He's trying to say right off the bat, before he gets into talking about unity and doctrine, that there's only one real way. There's only one right way. There's only one solid foundation. There's only one way to do the Christian life, to live the Christian life, to understand the Christian life. And I know that's a really hard concept for us because we see that there are numerous denominations. Numerous ways to view soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, or the doctrine of God, or the doctrine of sin, or the things to come, or angels, or demons, or the church. Well, Paul is laying a foundation here with where he's going, he's saying there's only one. Only one right way. Only one doctrine. And one God who gives us this doctrine. Not multiple. Then he goes into an afterthought as he builds up to his point. Verse 7 through 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all things, that he might fill all things. Now this is what happened, Paul is saying. Christ Jesus condescended. He came down to the earth. He came off of his throne on behalf of humanity. He lived a perfect and sinless life. He died on a cross. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. He was placed in the tomb on the third day he rose. He stayed with us 40 days. And then we see in Acts chapter one that he ascended. And in Acts chapter two, he gave gifts to men. Now, this isn't just in reference to charismatic sign gifts. Specifically, it's in reference to the gifting he gave to the church by way of equipping certain individuals for the work of ministry so that the foundation can be laid and the gospel can be advanced. And we see that in verse 12 and 11. So Christ did this mighty work in coming to the earth to redeem man. He does the redemptive work at the cross. He ascends. And notice what it says here in verse 8. When he ascended on high... He led captivity captive, or he led a host of captives. What this is literally saying is he led away captive those who held humanity captive. These are the demonic forces, the principalities. Christ conquered over them at the cross, rendering them powerless. We think about what the book of John says. Jesus says, now is the ruler of this world cast down. He was speaking about what is about to take place He is going to lose his authority. He's going to lose his power over those who believe in the Christ. Sin and death will lose its sting. And in doing so, he led captivity, led in captivity those who held people in captivity. He led captivity captive. And he gave gifts to men. Verse 10 says that he did this that he might fill all things. Fill all things with the fullness of God. And it says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And He gave them as a gift for the purpose to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ. Now, I want to talk a little bit about these offices. The apostle, or the word in the Greek is apostolos, it means sent one, or one sent. The apostle was sent by God. There were certain criteria you had to meet to be an apostle of God. Not like we see with the modern day apostles. You had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. You would have been taught by the Lord. We see that there's 12 apostles minus one when Judas betrays Jesus and then hangs himself Matthias replaces him, and then we have the Apostle Paul. All of these men would have been eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, and they would have been ordained by Christ. The Apostle's office consisted of all of the offices. The apostle was kind of the spearhead of the faith. The apostles and prophets laid the very foundation of the faith. The apostle operated to one degree or another in all of these functions. The apostle Paul, we see, was prophetic. He knew what would lay before him in certain towns and certain cities that he was going to go into. He was shown things in heaven that could not be uttered by man. He was also a master evangelist. We see him as a chief speaker in the book of Acts when he would go into different cities and to proclaim the gospel of God. He was also a shepherd because oftentimes when he would go in a city, he would spend time there, help to establish a church, and shepherd among them. And he was a teacher. A teacher not just in his dealings personally, in ministering to established churches, but also through his epistles. Then you have the prophets. Then you have the evangelists, like Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. We see him ministering the gospel, making it very clear to him, and then baptizing him. And then we have the brother in the church who is famous for preaching the gospel. They would go to different churches and proclaim the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection, and the life of Jesus Christ so that people might believe unto salvation. And then you had the shepherds and teachers. The shepherds were the elders that would have been established in the different churches. But not all the shepherds were teachers. Some of them were simply committed to oversight, functionality in the church, attending to needs of individual saints. But then there were teachers. Some of the shepherds taught, and this is what Paul says in 1 Timothy that they're worthy of double honor, the elders who labor in preaching and teaching. So that's why Paul has them grouped together here. But they were all given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Every one of them. They were to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And Paul says here in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, before I go on, I want to mention that there are no more no more apostles or prophets. There is no more need for apostles and prophets because the foundation has already been laid. And the shepherds and teachers and evangelists have taken over where the apostles and prophets left off. At the close of the apostolic era, there was no more need for divine prophecy or spiritual enlightenment uh, in the way of revelation from God because we had the written word and we had enough of the letters of the um, New Testament apostles circulating. We had a solid teaching. We had a solid foundation. There was no more apostles and prophets. The evangelists, In a sense, took over for the apostles. They were then the ones sent out, not in the sense of all that an apostle entailed, but sent out to proclaim the gospel of God. And the shepherds and teachers now speak the very truth laid forth in Scripture, which was predicated upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, these were all given as a gift, the Scripture said, given as a gift to the church for its functionality for its maturity, for its growth, for its edification. And the chief end is that we'd all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, we see very clearly that week in and week out, we have different ministers functioning in the church. We have the pastor that's at the pulpit, expositing the Word of God faithfully each week. Steve is gone, and now I'm able to step in for the preaching portion. But there's faithful ministry sounding forth from the pulpit whenever the elders are up here, Steve or myself. But in thinking about this text, is that enough? I mean, this is the chief way in which the Word comes forth, in which doctrine comes forth. But is it enough that we hear the word preached faithfully at the pulpit? And as I was really thinking about this text, I thought, you know, I know that there's diversity of beliefs in the church. And some are subtle, and some are a little bit more serious, a little more vast. Is this Sunday preaching enough, or do we need to be really engaged in each other's lives more? I'm just think about how we can facilitate spiritual unity doctrinal unity outside of just hoping in the Sunday morning. You know I know that when people look for a church or they're drawn to a church it's uh usually because of the preaching they 'll look at the church's doctrinal statement they 'll see that they're committed to the doctrines of grace and expositional preaching, and perhaps that That draws them in, but that's not necessarily the case for everybody. Some people are looking for a local church, and they come, and they're they're really drawn in by the church culture. Church culture can really even make or break a church. Even if you have good preaching and good teaching, if the church culture is just dry and families aren't involved in each other's lives and there's not love and there's not fellowship and there's not servitude, it has this sense of feeling superficial or dead. And and I think about Rock Valley Bible Church, and I, one thing I noticed when Ashley and I first came is the love that we experienced. I mean, we we knew that we were coming to a doctrinal church that was dedicated to expositional preaching and the doctrines of grace. And we were excited about that. But when we came, we were taken back. We're like, wow. The the love, and I remember Darren even, was one of the first people we talked to. And just the love that we felt when we came, and all the families, and the way that everyone came around us, it it was very special to us. And for some people, that's all it takes. It's It's not the teaching, it's not the preaching, it's the culture. And there are churches that are filled with people that are there for the culture. So what do we do in the case of those who aren't as sound in doctrine? Perhaps some of them are here for the culture or for the fellowship, and don't care as much about the preaching and teaching. Maybe they're not as sound in their understanding of the Word of God. What do we do as a church to make sure there's unity, unity in doctrine, that we're obeying Ephesians chapter 4, that we're seeking to be unified? I think applicationally, being in each other's lives more. Outside of church, just getting together more in our areas of influence, or just making, being intentional about Coming together in groups and saying, hey, you know what, let's get together and let's do Bible studies. Not, not on just one topic, but, but let's cover why we believe what we believe as a church. Let's talk about what we believe about salvation. Let's talk about what we believe about the Holy Spirit or what we believe about the things to come or what we believe about God or what we believe about the church. Let's sit down and really discuss these things, family. and Let's, let's grow in our understanding and in our spiritual maturity, as Paul puts it. Let's make sure that we're unified, that we believe the same thing. And if somebody believes something different, let's listen to why they believe something different. Let's, let's bear with each other in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's sit down with one another, and when there's a differing opinion or, or something outside of what we believe as a church... Let's talk about these things. And then, as a church, let's talk about the things that we believe. The things that Rock Valley Bible Church are built on. To make sure we're on the same page. To make sure we're functioning, as Paul puts it, properly. You know, one way you could do that is by getting together and studying the Bible alongside of a systematic theology book. And all that is, is a book that will help you to understand the different doctrines. Like the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of angels and demons and etc. And it will help you to break down the Bible and understand why we believe different things. It could be a great help. Oftentimes what happens to people is that they get pulled away into a strange teaching because there's a misunderstanding about a certain passage or a certain book. I think biblical theology is, is really great. Biblical theology would look at a certain author and a certain book and the thrust of that book and the intent of that book. But sometimes, and I can think of one book right now that readily comes to my mind, First Corinthians, in which certain brethren will hyper-focus on. And they'll negate scriptures and passages of scripture from other books of the Bible, and they'll get hung up on certain teachings. And what happens is they get led astray into a various and strange teaching. Now Paul says the importance of us doing this, the importance of us making sure we believe the same thing, making sure that we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, this is all doctrinal, is so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It's this idea of a boat being out on the waters and it's, it's just this, there's turmoil. It's, the boat's being thrown every direction. It's trying to head for landfall, but it can't because this teaching comes in and this teaching comes in and this teaching comes in. And I think what would be a great help is for those in Rock Valley Bible Church who know, and and they could say, you know, I'm firm in what I believe. I understand why as a church we believe what we believe and practice what we practice. And and I feel strong enough to gather people around me and to to be one of those people who would sow into their lives and to make sure that they understand the Scriptures. I think if that's you, then you ought to think, what can I start doing? applicationally, to get people around me to really help them in this area. Because there are some, to one degree or another, and we might not realize it at first because we all go to the same church, but some people to one degree or another who believe strange things are pulled away by things that are hindering them from spiritual maturity. Now, I want to focus on a couple words here. A couple of things the apostle says he says that this happens by cunning craftiness and deceitfulness cunning craftiness and deceitfulness this is oftentimes how people get pulled away into strange teachings strange and diverse teachings i would say that this often happens well the mostly happens with three different platforms the first platform is books. There are so many books available for Christians, it's, it's unbelievable. There are, every year there are hundreds of thousands, not thousands of books coming out about different things or different aspects of Scripture, different doctrines or the Holy Spirit or the things to come or the, who God is or who Christ is or how someone is saved. And we see bookstores that are loaded with, with different material. Loaded with different material. Or we go on Amazon and we want to learn something about the Holy Spirit. So we're on Amazon and we see that someone wrote a book, an author that we're not totally familiar with, wrote a book talking about the Holy Spirit. And we read a small portion of that and and it sounds biblically sound. So we purchase that book. And then all of a sudden we get to reading and they're using scripture. But we don't realize the subtleties. We don't realize the craftiness behind it or the deceitfulness behind it, the cunning behind it. And so we start getting pulled off, veering off into a different direction. There's a, a gentleman that I talk to regularly uh, who used to go to a, charis- a charismatic church with me. We came out of a, a charismatic church, a heavily charismatic background. We had to learn the hard way uh, that, that doctrine is of the utmost importance. But when I talk with this gentleman, he always says to me, you know, I just don't understand. He always preached from the Bible. He always preached the word of God. But that's exactly what happens when people are led away or led astray by strange doctrine. Is they don't recognize that the guy who's doing this or the girl who's doing this is always going to use the word of God. It's what they do with it that distorts the truth and leads people astray into various doctrines. And so we start reading these books, and we start gaining, uh, we start giving a foothold to this teaching. And next thing you know, we wake up, and we have some wonky theology. And we don't know how we got there. And then we start trying to tell people about it, and they give us a strange look and say, well, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, I've read this book, and this guy was talking about, the book of Corinthians, and he was telling me all of these things in there, and and it was so compelling. Yeah, but what does the rest of the Bible say about that? Or have you read a book on church history? Or things like this. So oftentimes books, books can be our best friend. It's what we use to learn, right? We read our Bible. They teach us teachings from various books in Bible college and in seminaries. So they're good, but, but oftentimes when people buy books, they're not always familiar with whether or not a teaching is sound, or they don't know how to recognize it immediately. This is why I say a good systematic theology would be a help. The second way, and I think that this is the most powerful way in which false teachers work, is through music. It's through music. I had mentioned earlier culture. And how some people go to churches because of the culture created. And they like the culture, and they're not even as worried about the doctrine. Oftentimes, that's how it is with music. Music creates a culture, and music is very, very powerful. I I can witness that in my own children. Just about the time they're old enough to stand on their own two feet, I put a song on, and next thing I know, they're swaying at the hips. Or they're clapping their hands. They're dancing around. They're just, you don't have to teach a child to do it. Music comes on and there's something that happens in the soul where they begin to move. Music is powerful. Music is influential. Music can change an atmosphere. It really can. Just go to a grocery store when they're playing maybe an old song you used to listen to and see a feeling start to rise up in you without you even noticing it or realizing it. There's just this, you start feeling different, or maybe you start feeling happy when a certain song's on. It's because music is powerful. And oftentimes, this is a platform for deception. I think about a handful of different music groups that are really good at this. To name a few, there's Hillsong, Bethel Church, Elevation Worship. And this last one, I want you to think about the name Jesus Culture jesus culture because there's a culture that is inherent with this people begin to hear certain songs on the radio and they like it some of these songs are very powerful sounding and they move us they stir us and we don't know that there's doctrinal issues when we dig down deep associated with these music groups but it's often a gateway We start to hear the music. We like the music. We turn on the television. We see the preachers. They have these giant mega churches. They're extremely influential. We like the way they dress. We like their smooth talk. We like their acceptance of certain sins. Their tolerance of certain sins. And so we're drawn in. This often happens among the youth and young adults, but it can happen to anybody. I remember Hillsong and Bethel, Jesus Culture Elevation Worship, was probably some of the number one music we played back at the Pentecostal church I used to go to. They're right in line with that kind of teaching. Health and wealth and prosperity, word of faith type stuff. But another thing that happens is oftentimes this... Music is played in churches, and someone, maybe a youth or an adult, will look at the TV screen with the lyrics, and they'll see that there's a song being played from one of these groups, so they think it's safe. Then they begin to be pulled in that direction. They begin to be pulled away into these teachings. And we've got to think about who some of the most influential people are, is our young adults, our youth. I think about when Jesus says it would be greater for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown in the depth of the sea than to cause a little one to stumble. And I think that's very sobering for us as a church. Yet it's one of those ways in which teachings come in. It's one of those platforms and probably the most powerful platform in which these deceitful schemes come in. And I think about what the Apostle Paul says about certain teachers. He says that they bring in, or they secretly bring in destructive heresies. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. Paul writes about Hymenaeus and Philetus in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And he says that the things that they began to spread were upsetting the faith of some individuals. And their talk was spreading like gangrene. It's like an infectious disease that begins to rot something away. Some of the teachers, Paul says, were hungry for money. Other teachers, Paul said, wanted to be teachers of the law. And we see in Galatians, some of them insisted on circumcision. But it's our diligent duty, those who are mature among us, to come alongside of our brothers and sisters, and to lead them in truth, and the truth of God's Word, and to accept nothing less. You know, I understand that even as a church with some of the music, we we look for the doctrinally sound songs. And even though we know that some of these music groups are tolerant of certain things, certain sins, teach certain doctrines, we say, well, if we only sing the theological songs that they write, we can mitigate that issue. But think about what Christ says. He says, a little leaven leavens the entire lump. Cast it out and have a whole new lump. A little leaven leavens the entire lump. And again, the scripture says, what accord does Christ have with Belial? It's when we tolerate the little things. It's, it's those little things that come in over time that begin to pull people away or allow them to tolerate other teachings or other things and not staying in line with the firm foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. It's deceitful schemes. Thirdly, there's television. And we know we can put on YouTube or cable. And we have CBN or TBN where there's strange teachings. I'm not even going to touch on that one. We know. But Paul says look, we're to speak the truth in love. We're to speak the truth in love, especially those who are mature, who are bearing with one another, mature doctrinally. Speak the truth in love. Seek to build up the church in truth on a firm foundation. And then we will grow up into every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, the whole church, is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And he says, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That should be our aim. So church, I think... The challenge from this text would be, and Steve talks about this all the time, let's do the one and others. Let's serve one another by coming together, devoting ourselves like the Bereans to the word of God, searching the scriptures to see what really is so. Being spiritually sound, doctrinally sound, doctrinally mature. Keeping one another firm in the faith that we might not waver and be tossed to and fro by the storms, but stand strong, united, united in Christ. And this is when, Paul says, the body will grow and build itself up in love. Well, there's a lot more that can be said. And that's what a preacher says when there's nothing more to say. So I'm going to end there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, let us not be offended at your word. Let us be humbled. Let us be stirred, always seeking with all of our hearts in every way to please Christ. Father, cause us to come alongside one another in love, to minister to one another the truth of your word, to always remind one another of your word. To bear with one another unto spiritual maturity, united in the faith in our very roots, Father. May our roots spread out and link with one another. Bearing one another up that we might endure as a church in the strength of your might. Give us hearts to do so, Lord. Let us not be as ones who come and hear and go away and forget what was heard, but those who hear the word and do to glorify you. Be with us this week. Remind us of these things throughout the week that we might apply them in our lives and devote even our own lives to the study of your word for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.